Here's what we learned last week. That there are things, and I used a golf analogy to show you. I, I hope that worked. I, I don't know for sure. You'd have to tell me. But there are some things that we do, and for one of two reasons, it tends to go bad, just like golf. Uh, one of the reasons is when it comes to relationships and marriage, we look to the people that were ahead of us as a model for how to operate, which can be very good. And in fact, the Bible talks about that in Titus, that, that older women are supposed to train younger women on how to be a godly wife. And so if that goes well, then we get all sorts of knowledge and insights. But in a broken world, we know that that's not always the case. And so we look for a way of operating from people who have not given us the best example. And like golf, we've learned all sorts of mechanical issues in our swing that have led us astray. And I told you the second thing that we do where we kind of mess up is instead of looking to God's word for truth, we just tell ourselves, like we do in golf, it's not that hard, I can figure it out on my own. And because things in marriage are counterintuitive, that goes wrong. And so counterintuitive concepts like uh, things that you hear in culture about love is that you, know, you fall in love and you fall out of love. That's something that you would think would be true, but really as you study the word of God and then feel the pain of that reality in your own life, you realize that's something you feel to be true, but it's not actually the way it is, that love is a decision. And there's all sorts of things like that where the Bible says it, and intuitively, because we're emotional creatures, our intuition or our emotional desires don't line up with what God's called us to, and so when we try to do it on our own, what the byproduct is, is we fail. And so we talked about ways that we fail last week, and then the role of the man, and I'm going to review it again, that the Bible is clear from Genesis to the end of the Bible that the man has a very specific role in the marriage covenant. And so what we said was marriage, unlike the business world, is a covenant, not a contract. And a contract is you negotiate your own terms, and the best person that's going to benefit from the contract is self. And so you need that in business so that you can you know, get what you need from that business deal. Marriage is a covenant, and it flips that on its head, and it says counterintuitively that the person who gets the best deal, in a sense, is the person that you're serving through the duration of your life till death do you part in this covenant of marriage. And so the person who you're looking out for in a covenant is not yourself, but the person that you're sacrificing for. And so in a covenant, every covenant has a head. The Bible talks about, spiritually speaking, what I'm not talking about is that women in any way are subordinate to men, and I'm not even talking outside of the context of marriage. This is just for marriage, but in the covenant of marriage, each person has a complementary role that they play according to Scripture, and when those things complement each other, it glorifies God through this idea of the two becoming one. And so in this covenant, when this is happening, there's a specific role that the Bible talks about for men to play in their spiritual leadership, and that role is sacrificial. That the role of the husband is probably the most harshly defined role and the hardest to live up to. I had someone say last week, uh, an older woman came up to me and she said, I believe everything you're saying, but I've never met a man that actually looks like that. And so we know that although there's not a lot of people live up to this standard, we all fall short, this is something that we strive to or strive for as husbands. This sacrificial love, and sacrificial love is defined like Christ loves us, that he loves us as his bride, that he gives himself up for us, that he suffers with us in our hardship, that he literally goes to a cross and dies in our place so that we can have life, and he puts his own needs second behind the will of the Father 
for our good so that we can experience salvation. And that call to die to self is the call of humble servant leadership for men. I heard someone say this week that biologically you can be male. Hear me say this. This is, this is important. Biologically you can be male and not be a man. Biologically you can be a male because that's the way that God made you biologically, but you can still act like a boy. And if you're 30 years old and still acting like a boy, this person said that was preaching in Texas, you're just a boy that can shave. Biologically, you can be female, but not a woman, because these roles are defined in the Bible of people who have grown up spiritually and are operating under the context of character. And so as we look at the world around us, as we look at the role of husband and father, there are some things that even if you're not a Christian, you have to just concede by observation, you know, like an armchair sociologist, that these things hold to be true. No one can say with any intellectual integrity, it's best for children to be fatherless in fatherless environments. We know that this role of husband and father is critical to development. We know that it's critical that they're humble servants. I, one of my, my main people that are in my ear, I know this is going to shock you, is my wife. She tells me when I do things well, and she's quick to say, I think you missed it. And so last Sunday, I was preaching this message, and we were driving home, and, and I don't beg for compliments. I just uh, earnestly ask for them. And it was quiet. It was kind of quiet, and I'm like, eh, I didn't really ask, and I knew it was coming. I'm like, eh. And she goes, oh, that was a pretty good sermon. You kind of missed it, though, because you started talking about fatherless homes, and she said, if that was my story and I'm a kid sitting in church, I'm probably feeling like, well, great, now I'm cooked, right? And I thought, man, that's so true. And so I just want to caveat that by this reality. Single moms and widows, this is what a guy named Matt Chandler said. He said, where the ideal is lacking, because we know that this is important, right? We know that the role of the husband and the father is critical. But he said this, in Scripture, where the ideal is lacking, write it down if you write stuff down, where the ideal is lacking, grace always abounds. So even if it's not picture perfect, welcome to new life, there's a lot of us in that storyline. Even if it's not picture perfect, where the ideal is lacking, scripturally, grace abounds. That God uses the church to be the church to deal with issues that aren't ideal, and that's the whole point. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And so we know that there is this reality where men refuse to be men, things crumble apart. The poorest communities across America and even the world, and, and proof specifically where we're at, where there's fatherlessness, there's literal poverty, that the man plays a pivotal role in his leadership. I heard someone else say this. I'm going to move on to the sermon that's really about, it's about wives. But it said this is just another caveat to start. He said, here's how you define biblical masculinity. Men give and boys take. Men give and boys take. And so you can be of a certain age, but if you're still somebody who takes in the world around you, right? if you're, so, if you're still someone who is, is looking at life through a lens of what can I get out of it, who can serve me, then you're not acting like a man in scripture that's a godly man. You're taking in a way that's very childish, and we all start there. I was telling the last service, Greg's son, he, he likes me, and so I just have this bond with him. He, he has this grumbling voice, and he goes, rod, and he's one years old, and I love him because I'm a bit narcissistic, and he loves me. And so hey, we have this relationship, but I told you a few weeks ago, when you take something from him, the YouTube videos of Blippi that he loves, 
he screams. He goes nuts. He lo- it's like, who is this child? He is a taker by virtue of being one. That's the way he's designed to this point in his life. But go- Greg's goal and Kendra's goal with him is that he moves from take mode to become a man where he's giving. He's giving to his wife. He's giving to his children. He's giving with a generous heart. He's giving of his time. He's giving to his church. He's giving, you know, in just a general sense, he's pouring out and he's multiplying. That's what a man does. That's what godly men in the Bible do. They set the spiritual climate of the home. And so now as we get to today, we're going to start in Genesis. I'm going to say a few things that need definition, and I think when they get definition, it will be a bit eye-opening. And I've been listening to other people, and I come at this subject humbly, mainly because I'm not a woman. But we're going to talk about what this Bible says is how godly wives operate in the context of their marriage. Genesis chapter 2, we'll start at the beginning. I tell you guys this last week, Greg and got Chuck and I these mugs. You guys, can you see this? You guys remember old school Nintendo, Super Mario Brothers? Doesn't it look like a cartridge? I drink water with pride. All right, back to Genesis chapter 2. Classic scripture of the first marriage and the creation of woman. The Bible says this, then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Underline the word helper. I think that's the word that surrounds controversy, and I want to define it. I'll make a helper fit for him. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found another time a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall over the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this is a romantic, poetic form of expression, verse 23, And then the man said, this is at last the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. This whole idea of we are so intertwined in how we operate that we are one flesh. And that's physical and that's emotional and that's spiritual. Because she's taken out a man, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed listening to different theories on what's important in this text. I want to bring a few things to light. I think they're worth writing down if you choose to. The first one is this, culturally going on in this text. Um, this, this was all being read by people thousands of years ago in a very misogynistic culture. There's some radical things that were being written from the first man and the first woman that need to be taken note of. Number one, in a polygamous culture, in a polygamous culture when this was all documented, God creates man and woman in the storyline. There's one man, and for him is one woman. And in the midst of a polygamous culture, there's monogamy that's shown. That's worth noting, okay? The second thing that's interesting is this, that God creates the woman, and he doesn't pull a part of the man's body from his back. He pulls it from his heart, from his rib. And so there's this idea of intimacy in the very creation. In the very creation, there's intimacy. The third thing is this, it would have been ridiculous in this time period for a man to be expected to leave his family. 
Women were less than. They were in sense property. There was polygamy all around them. They would have had, if you were wealthy, many, many wives. And so the idea that the man would somehow leave his family as the, as the primary breadwinner and, and with the farm and agriculture would have been insane. And yet it says with the first man and the first woman that the man is the one who's supposed to leave and supposed to be united with his wife. And so if you are older, still living in your parents' basement, it might be time, men, it might be time to make that transition. That's biblical masculinity. And so there's these different things going on in this text, but then within it is this controversial term that the, the woman was created for uh, the glory of God, but he, she was created in a way where she's a helper fit for Adam. And I don't know how you hear that, but depending on your background or just your predisposition to hearing a text like this, that might rub you the wrong way. And just to be very transparent, it kind of rubs me the wrong way too because I'm going, well, what does that mean? And I want to break that down because I listened to some stuff this week that I think is extremely important for us to hear. There's a root word to that term helper in the Hebrew. And it's used in this text and it's the same word to show how God engages with man and helps man. So let me read you a few verses on where God is a helper. Verses, uh, Deuteronomy 33:7, And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With your hands contend for him, and check this out, and be a help against his adversaries. And so God is helping man. Here's another one, Psalms 33:20, an intimate portrait of our relationship with God. Very quick, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our he is our help and our shield. And so just using deductive reasoning, if God, and we know this to be true, this is blasphemy if you don't believe this, if God is not inferior to us by virtue of helping, then there's no way that a wife can somehow be less than or inferior to her husband by virtue of having skill sets in the way of helping. Is that, are you tracking with that? Does that make sense? I, that, for me, that was just kind of... That was a big deal. That the role of helping someone in no way is subordinate to them. And so a few questions on what it means to be a godly wife. Number one, what does it mean to be a helper? Write this down, and it's gonna be on your screen. A helper helps the one with primary responsibility. Here's how we would define it. To help is to come alongside. And in fact, just... This is also something that I think is, is really interesting. If you know how to do something, if someone needs something from you and they don't know how to do it correctly, and by virtue of you knowing something, if you help them with it, who's the one in that sense that cannot possibly be inferior in any way? Because if you need help, then that's a sign of weakness in and of itself, is it not? You need help from God. You can do nothing without him. He's not inferior to you by being able to do something and help you with something that you can't accomplish. He is gracing you with a gift or knowledge or power that you don't have. And so a helper comes alongside the one who holds primary responsibility. And just to be clear, we're talking about spiritual things, not just everyday practical things the spiritual role of helping. The second thing is this, a helper is strong where the other person is weak. A helper is strong where the other person is weak. And so myself, yourself, everybody, we all have, and this is humility, just to recognize this, own it, and lead through it, we all in our leadership have blind spots. If you don't think you have blind spots in your leadership, you're prideful and you're gonna fall, okay? 
Helping requires strength where the other person is weak. And so in marriage, write this down, you don't compete, you compliment. And those strengths where you're strong and the other person is weak, you compliment those things with them. There are things that Anne and I, you know, I've, I'm only married to Anne, so if you get tired of my stories, I don't, I don't know what to do about that, okay? There are things in our marriage where there's things that I'm really strong at. I'm, I'm very social. It's not just a facade. I like to be around people. Uh, she does not like to be in the limelight at all. We're different in that way. And so because of that, there's some things, there's some, there's some gaps in my leadership. One of them is, Greg tells me all the time, you're too optimistic, you're going to get smacked by people. And I'm the guy that's like, well, let's take over the world, we can do this, you know, there's going to be setbacks, but who cares, we'll just accomplish it. And I think that's just the role that God gave me. Chuck kind of has that same disposition with me. He knows that after the adrenaline rush as a leader, where do I really stand? Do I really think this is of God, or am I just excited about the next shiny object, right? That's something that's carried me through my whole adult life, in my marriage, in my leadership, in the church. That's just something that I struggle with, and it's something that I thrive in. My wife is the total opposite. She sees blind spots that I don't see. She sees things about people that I don't choose to see because either I'm optimistic or emotionally lazy. She'll come alongside of me because she has a strength of seeing through people and seeing through scenarios where the, and maybe you can relate to this as a wife specifically, that you help your husband because you have these special woman powers called spider senses that tingle. And you walk into a room and you just kind of know. You kind of know, I don't know if we can fully trust that or I don't know if we can fully trust this person. And so she plays that role in my life and it's because she's strong in an area that I'm weak and we compliment each other in that way. And so I listen to her. My wife's got eyebrows for days. She turns her eyebrows in and she sees right through the heart of someone who has bad motive. And I've learned over the years, man, I, I, I don't know why she understands things like that and I, I sometimes don't, but I've learned to lean in on her because we compliment each other in that way and she has my best interest in mind. So that's what a helper does. A helper comes alongside. And the second question I want to answer before we get super practical is this. What are the character traits of a godly wife? That the Bible actually speaks to these things and these ways that we're supposed to live out our faith in the covenant of marriage. And so for that, I want to turn to Titus chapter 2. And it talks about older men and older women and then it gets specifically into what older women do as they train younger women in this idea of marriage. But Titus chapter 2, verse 2, you can look it up on your own or go back and watch this sermon again. But this is what Paul says. He says, older men are to be self, uh, sober-minded. Older men are to be dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And so here, here's the umbrella of what it looks like to be a godly wife then. Verse 5. In that training to be self-controlled, and it's interesting to note that self-controlled is for the men and for the women because we all lack this quality. And so that's not you know, based on being a man or a woman or a husband or a wife. To be self-controlled is to be a godly wife, to be pure. Paul says to be working at home, and just to break that down real quickly, that doesn't mean you don't have a job outside of the home. That means that you come alongside your husband and you are active in the discipleship process in your family. 
You're working at home, and underline this one. I'm going to go on a little tangent here to be kind and to be submissive to their own husbands. And so if you're looking, what does submission look like? The Bible talks about it over and over, Ephesians 5, Titus 2. It looks like being self-controlled and pure and kind and discipling in the home and loving your husbands. That's that's the context of what it looks like to be a godly wife. Of all those attributes, I think they're fairly self-explanatory. The thing that sticks out to me is kindness. What does it look like, men and women, to be kind and sacrificial in the covenant? And a thought that I had that I want to share with you is this. It's unbelievable when you're in counseling sessions and you start unpacking people's issues and, and, and the baggage that they're carrying in after years of poor communication, after years of resentment. There's, it's unbelievable the things that they're harboring them to that they don't even realize they're harboring in their heart. And one of those things is just a, a pure breakdown of kindness. It's unbelievable, women. Just, just hear this from a man's heart, okay? It's unbelievable the power that God has given you in your relationship with your husband to either tear him down or build him up. There are people, because of what I do, and just this is like year 11 going into 12, there are people, I know this is going to shock you, if you're in leadership in any way, it's not being a pastor. If you're on a platform, if you're speaking, there are, there's a bell curve to it. Here's the bell curve. A few percent of people think that nothing you do is wrong. I would be cautious if you want to be in leadership. Don't listen to them. Okay, there's another percent on the other end of the bell curve, also a minority, who think everything you do is wrong. When you breathe, you breathe wrong in leadership. And then there's a whole bunch of people that don't really care. And because I'm a people pleaser, those few percent that it's like every time you say something, they have this, well, you know, they'll write you this email or something like that, and you can't really please them. My first five, six years in ministry, I was always trying to please about 2% of the people. And what I've learned is everything they say, because I'm getting older and I'm balding and I've just been at this longer, I have to kind of put them in in a compartment and go, you know, that's what they think over here. And those people that no matter what I do tell me, great job, that's what they think over here. And my goal is to hit the middle where I'm listening to criticism and I'm not getting too caught up in praise and I'm just knowing that that's how I'm supposed to lead. And I tell you all of it to say this. All of those opinions, after a while, unless you end up you know, in a mental hospital because you, can't, you just can't control your emotions because what people say to you matters so much. All of those people, after a while, while in leadership, there's this numbing where you hear it, but you don't absorb it like you used to. The reason I tell you all that is to tell you this. That's not the case with my wife. My wife will tell me things, and she's in this special category where even if I want to act like I don't care what she says because I don't want to hear it, Her words have power to affect me for the good and for the bad. I'm on like sermon 500. I get in the car and I get the look from her and I'm just deflated like, oh man, I didn't quite knock it out of the park today because I care what she says. That her words have the power to tear up. They have tremendous power for good and they have tremendous power for bad. I told the first service and I think I said this one time in church, I was in Orlando a couple of months ago, and we took the kids on a trip to Disney World. Grandparents paid for it. That made it the best trip ever. And we're going home, and there's all sorts of flight issues. 
And so we have this interaction with this lady behind the counter, and it was like our fourth time trying to get on standby. My oldest son is getting closer to being an adult. He got on standby, got the first flight out, and I said, son, we'll see you soon. Four flights later, I'm like, I wish he could come back here, and I could go in his place. And the fourth flight in, there was this lady behind the counter, and I am almost always, just by full disclosure, I'm almost always the one that's embarrassed publicly of making a scene, and my wife is the one that can get real nasty if she needs to, and that's her spiritual gift. She can tell people how it is, and for some reason, people love her for it. But in this case, I was tired. I didn't want to miss church on Sunday. I had to call Micah and say, get one ready in the bag. You need to have 12 hours to prepare. I can't make it home. I get to the front of this line, She's, there's 30 people on standby. We're at the top of the list. And she looks at me and I say, we have to get on this plane. It's about to leave. She goes, just a minute. And she looks at me and I say, we got to get on this plane. She goes, just a minute. And then the gate closed. And I'm telling you, just confession time. I lost my mind. I lost my mind. And I'm a communicator. And so I just went, blah, you could have got us on this plane and you could have done this and you waited. I never have done this. She's never, 20 years. She's never seen me do this. I said, I waited and I waited and I waited. I'm going to miss church tomorrow. Blah, 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 blah. And she's just, you know, have you ever seen Meet the Parents where the person looks at the guy trying to get on the airplane? She just looks at me like, so what? And I, I start pacing. I start pacing and I get this text from Anne. And she's always the one that does that and not me if it ever happens. And she texts me while I'm having the biggest pity party. And she says, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> That's what she says. You should be ashamed of yourself. I was like a dog who just peed on the carpet. <laughs> like I couldn't, I was just kind of, you know, my middle child's with me. My son's already on an airplane. And I just feel like a total moron. I just feel like, I just feel like you know, just, I'm just feeling ashamed of myself. And she has that power over me where I come whimpering back and I'm like, yeah. And then I had to interact with this lady again. She was there the next day. <laughs> That's as far as we're gonna go with that story. My point is this, a wife's words have power. A wife's words have power. Power to tear down, power to tell the truth, power to compliment your weakness, power to speak into your life. A wife's words have power. And so to operate from a position of kindness for men and women is critical in the covenant. As we, as we close this out, it's going to take a few minutes. I, I decided, because I've been married a while and I'm a husband, I thought, what gift can I give you? I don't understand what it's like to be you. But what if I could give you this insight free of charge on what your husband might be thinking and things that you could possibly be doing that are working against you in the marriage as a wife? And so because I get to choose what we do, I, I said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so here it is. Um, insights into husbands and future husbands. And, and this is kind of the opinion column of the sermon. And so these are things that I've seen in counseling. They're repetitive themes. And one of them is very stereotypical. The other breaks stereotypes. There's gonna be about four of them that break stereotypes. But these are things that maybe you thought you knew about your husband or they thought weren't a big deal that are actually working against you in your marriage, in my opinion. And just to give it a little bit of clout, the larger the sample size and research, the more reliable the data. This is coming from a few thousand hours of sessions with couples, okay, over the last 17, 18 years. These are some of the themes I see. How do you better understand and invest in your husband? Number one, write it down if you are married. This one, I think people know, and there's a reason it's a bestseller. There's a book called 
love and respect. That the man's primary love language is built on the economy of respect. And so here, here's in counseling what I've seen happen when there's a respect breakdown. There's one of two things that are happening that are dysfunctional with men. The second thing happens more, but we'll cover the first one real quick. When husbands don't feel respected by their wives, they tend to either do one of two things. Number one, they lash out. Or number two, they shut down. The shutdown's more common. And I'll give a caveat by saying this about either lashing out or shutting down. Just because they're lashing out or shutting down doesn't mean that you're being disrespectful to your spouse. It could just mean that the man's being selfish. It could just be something that they need to repent of. But it also could be, it also could be that that's their mode of operations every time they feel disrespected. And the thing that's tricky about that is I'm not saying that men aren't in touch with their emotions because I think that that gets overplayed. But it could possibly be that they're shutting down and they don't even quite know why they're shutting down. And so now they're coming to counseling with you and there's this communication barrier that's formed. The economy of the male tends to be built on the principle of respect. And when they feel disrespected, this is, I'm just going to tell you this. When they feel disrespected, in my humble opinion, when they feel disrespected, they feel demasculated. The, the pride of man is real. And that's not good, but I'm just practically speaking. When a man feels disrespected by his wife, he feels demasculated and he tends to shut down. Women aren't the only ones who neglect intimacy when their needs aren't met. That's a stereotype that's not always true. All right, here's, a, here's another stereotype. You can write this one down. Uh, this is probably going to be the thing that you remember of the whole sermon because last service they remembered it. The stereotype is only women like to feel pretty. The truth is, in my humble experience, men like to feel pretty too. And, and here's why I tell you that. I know that sounds really cheesy. You're like, why would you even go there? I think it's important. Wives, you have more power than you realize to pour into your husbands with your actions and your words. But let me just build a little evidence for my case. You go to the YMCA, how many guys do you sit there just like looking in the mirror, right? I know that pretty's not the right word, but pretty's the word that you'll remember. I'm not even kidding you. I saw a guy in church right before service started. He was in front of his girlfriend and he was showing her his triceps. And I thought, man, this is prophetic. This is prophetic. Men love to feel, here, here's the real thing I'm getting at. I just said that for shock value. Men love to feel affirmed by their wives. It feels really good. So, so the stereotype would be that women have to be affirmed by their husbands and, and they need those words of affirmation. I'm just saying clinically, men need the same thing in a bit of a different way. They love feeling like they're treasured by their brides. They love when their wives find them attractive. They love when their wives only have eyes for them. They feel disrespected when their wives flirt with, give attention to, reach out on social media with another man, or constantly have a need, a social, emotional need, to get their cup filled by someone else other than him. This is not just a female issue. And to say it is, is just a stereotype that's not true. Here's another stereotype that's not true. Men don't share their feelings. They share their feelings, they just share their feelings differently. For a woman, on average, it's a stereotype. I'm not saying it's true every time. I would break the mold. I'm a little different. For women, it's like if we're going to communicate, we sit down in a chair, we look at each other in the eyes, and then the watch starts, and it's like, go, tell me about your day. 
My experience with men is that if you want them to open up and feel emotionally connected, they need to communicate, but they tend to communicate not by staring in your eyes and staring you know, in a seat for 20 minutes. They tend to communicate through activities and common bonds, and then it opens the door. When you're actually doing something with them, then they'll start sharing things with you that they haven't shared for a while. Going on the walk or you know, maybe playing golf or whatever it is, they, they tend to be doers and they talk, especially farmers, right? They talk in the process of work and doing. And so to say that they don't communicate is just a stereotype that's not true. If you want to have a miserable marriage, communicate poorly. And here's how you communicate poorly. Men tend to be motivated, write this down. This is me, future book someday, you ready? Men tend to be motivated more by direct honesty if you're communicating than passive aggressive shaming. I know that's true of both parties, but, it, but we're talking about wives this week, okay? If you don't know what that is, let me just give you a quick little play out. What's wrong? Look at me. What's wrong? Nothing, right? What's wrong? Nothing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Oh, man, okay? Men tend to be better if it's up front and it's honest. And, and here's another thing if you're writing stuff down about your future marriage or current one. Over time, people who feel like they are being manipulated stop caring. People over time, this is obviously men and women, people who feel manipulated by passive aggressive behavior, what's wrong, nothing, I'm fine, whimper, whimper. Over a period of time, they go, I can't please that person, they're never honest with me and they're just manipulating me. And even if they don't know it, in their mind, intuitively, they start to understand that's what's taking place. And so communication for men and women is critical, is critical in the role of a godly wife. Here's another one, and it's one of the last things I'm going to say. Attraction, the, the stereotype is men are visual, men can compartmentalize, looks and sexuality and intimacy are all about, uh, for women, emotional connection. And that, that's obviously in large part true, but the stereotype that that's only true for women is wrong. Although men are wired a little differently, I will tell you this, in the process of a long marriage, men might be visual, but attraction for men as well is more than skin deep. Ananias, relationship, 21 years in now, 20 years married, it's, it's stimulating on an intellectual level where we have great conversation and we analyze, we dissect, and we share. In the long run, wives, your best physical qualities, your deep spiritual character. Proverbs 31 says this about this man's wife. It says, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens up her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Check this out in verse 28. Her husband also, and he praises her. He elevates her. Many women, this is, this is a famous verse. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of your hands and let her works praise in the gates. In the long run, your best physical qualities are deep spiritual character. And when these character attributes are put at the forefront, where men are selflessly serving as the primary spiritual leader of the home, and the woman is coming alongside the husband in his leadership, when those things are happening, 
even if the world around us is looking at it from, a, from an analyzing standpoint of saying, I don't believe this ideology. This isn't what I'm about. This seems so primitive and medieval. And how could there be a role for a man primarily? And how could there be a role for the woman primarily? I will tell you this. This is my experience. When they actually see it as more than an ideology and they see an ideology, ideology that's put into practice, they crave it. When they see that type of humble leadership mixed with, with a woman who, who really does just love her husband and want to serve him, and those things aren't competing, but they're complementing, the world around us, even if they don't agree, they see it on display, and they have to concede with the statistics in hand, their way is not as effective, that when the gospel is put on display, my experience is the lost world around us craves what we have. Craves what we have. When a man is loving his wife like Christ loves the church, and when a wife is coming along and helping him and partnering with him, that's a powerful display of the Holy Spirit transforming hearts. This is something we offer to the lost world around us. This is a biblical marriage. People actually want it when they see it even if they can't define it. If you're single, I'm going to close with this statement. If all you've been around, or maybe you've been married, been there, done that, or you're not content in your marriage, or maybe you're looking, you've never been married, I'll say this in closing. If all I had been around is bad men, if I was a woman who didn't lead spiritually, it would be very obvious as to why this would be so unsettling. And maybe that's your story. Statistically, there's a lot of us. If you're, you're asked to trust another human being in that area of life where, where they're leading you and you're going, I've seen men, I've experienced the pain of that, I don't feel vulnerable or comfortable enough to open myself up in that way to actually take on that role of helper. You have a good reason for thinking and feeling that way, but let me challenge you with this. Don't take the lowest common denominator and make it normative. Don't take a bad experience. This, this, is, this will work against you. It doesn't matter what area of life. Don't take a bad experience and then say, all people are this way over here, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna shut down. I'm gonna put walls up, and I'm not gonna be emotionally vulnerable or present. I promise you this, that's not gonna work for you. Don't take the lowest common denominator of the experience that you never should have had and then make it normative in your life and associate everything with it. That's just a blunder. What you do is you say, this is my story. This is how God's using it. But who I'm going to worship first is Christ and his leadership. And then I'm going to let him transform my heart and my marriage and my life for his glory. And I am going to live this disciplined, godly life inside my marriage and outside of my marriage because Christ first loved me and gave himself up for me. And he is a good groom. And I am his bride first. And I'm going to trust that he knows what he's doing. Don't ever take the lowest common denominator and make it normative in your adult life or you will be suffering the consequences. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We just ask that you would, you would humbly allow us to really give you this area of our life that can be so painful in how we live out our marriages. I pray that you take all of our stories and you would use it for one great story of life change at, at this church. That you would bring healing and you bring restoration. 
and that we would be living new lives in you. We thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you for rising from death so that we can have life. We pray this in your precious name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.